Good morning. I'm going to attempt to continue uh, looking at the, the, the book of Galatians this morning. This is the uh, second message that I'm attempting to bring on the book of Galatians, and I'll be looking at Galatians chapter 2 this morning for, uh, for my text. Um, pray for me that I might be able to expedite myself of this message in the uh, time that I have left. Two times in Philippians chapter 1, verses 7 and 17, Paul explains that he is set to, for the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. <clears throat> Nowhere does he do this more, uh, more intensely than in this letter to the Galatians. <clears throat> Six weeks ago, when I preached from chapter 1 of Galatians, I looked at a number of things that are important to understanding this letter to the Galatians. Let me do a little bit of a review to give context to, to the things that I want to share with you this morning. Uh, the, um, the first thing is that the Galatian churches that, uh, to which this letter is addressed are, were the four churches that were established as a result of Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey uh, into the central part of Asia Minor. Uh, secondly, just again a reminder that the, after Paul and Barnabas had established these churches in, uh, uh, in Galatia, uh, the, uh, they were invaded and influenced by uh, a Jewish Christian sect uh, referred to as Judaizers. Uh, these were Jewish proselyters who accepted Jesus as the Messiah but who thought and taught that it's not enough to believe in Jesus as our sin sacrifice, that in order to be truly saved and be made right with God, one needs also to be circumcised and keep the law, meaning certain aspects of the ceremonial laws, the law of Moses. In essence, they were mixing law and grace. Paul refers to these Judaizers here in chapter 2 as false brethren. It's an interesting phrase. Uh, actually, the, the Greek word would uh, lend itself to be translated pseudo-brethren. Not genuine brethren, but pseudo-brethren. Uh, and so... Um, this, uh, this matter of mixing law and grace is a serious error because by mixing law and grace, you are attempting to mix two substances, as it were, that do not integrate with each other. Uh, it's like mixing oil and water. Uh, each substance is unique and valuable, but they do not integrate. As soon as you stop stirring this mess, <laughs> Uh, the, the oil and the water separates again. And so because they, chemically, they, they do not integrate with each other. 
So law and grace each has its different purpose and its uh, particular and unique place. Furthermore, by saying that we are saved by grace and, and law, uh, grace and works, uh, we are insinuating that Jesus' sin sacrifice, his suffering, his death on the cross, and the shedding of his blood is not sufficient to atone for our sins and to reconcile us back to God. This is serious. Paul took it serious. Uh, somehow, in the economy of God, there is a spiritual law that says when you attempt to add, uh, when you attempt to add to what Christ did for us on the cross and the resurrection, you, uh, in reality, are actually subtracting from it. <laughs> so by attempting to add law or works to grace in order to be made right with God, you're actually uh, diminishing the, uh, the Jesus and his sin sacrifice on the cross of Calvary. Uh, in fact, the, the, the last verse of chapter 2, it says, I do not frustrate the grace of God. And, and that's what he's talking about. When you do this, you are frustrating, you are diminishing the grace of God. And so, so this is an important issue. It was then, and it's still an important issue today. Uh, well, all of this helps us to understand why Paul was so stern with the Galatian Christians for turning what he called to another gospel. A third thing we notice in chapter 1 is that the Judaizers attempted to discredit Paul's authority as an apostle. So Paul tells, tells in, in chapter 1 how after he met the Lord on the Damascus road, close to the city of Damascus, uh, and there he called him to be the apostle to the Gentiles, and how immediately after, instead of consulting with anyone else about this, he went directly to Arabia for two to three years, uh, where he received, by direct revelation, uh, the gospel that he preached. After he returned from Arabia, he went to Jerusalem to consult with Peter for 15 days, also met with James. And after this, Paul went to Tarsus. In fact, uh, if you read Acts, it says they send him to Tarsus, <laughs> uh, uh, and, uh, uh, which uh, refers to the, uh, the regions of Syria here in chapter 2, Syria and Cilicia, which is the area just east of Galatia, which is the area of Paul's home area. Well, having said all that, I'm going to read uh, Galatians chapter 2. Would you stand with me to the reading of the word? Then 14 years after I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also, and I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that 
that gospel which I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised, and that because of uh, false brethren, unawares, brought in, who came in privately to spy out our liberty, which might bring us into bondage, to whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But of those who seemed to be somewhat, whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me, God accepteth no man's person, for they who seemed to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me. But contrarywise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter, that for he that wrought effectively in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. When James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go unto the heathen and they unto the circumcision. Only they would that we should remember the poor in the same way I also, the same which I also was forward to do. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to blame, to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away this dissimulation. When I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, if thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of the Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I through the law am dead to the law, that I might live unto God, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is died in vain. You may be seated. A good title, a good title for uh, this message this morning would be the title of the song we sang, the last song we sang, 
The way of the cross leads home. That, that's really what I intend to end up with this morning. As you notice that Paul begins chapter 2 with an account of a second visit to Jerusalem, 14 years after his first visit there. Uh, allow me just to uh, note uh, some things that took place in those 14 years, according to the book of Acts, according to uh, historians as well. Uh, so for eight of those 14 years, Paul uh, was in his home area of Tarsus. We, we know very little about what uh, any, of, any of Paul's activities during those years in Tarsus. Um, it, it, maybe it was a little bit like, uh, like uh, Moses' 40 years in the wilderness, uh, preparing him for his, uh, his life of uh, ministering the gospel to the Gentiles. We don't know, so we won't speculate uh, what, uh, what he might have been doing do the, during those eight years in Tarsus. Uh, the, uh, then after that, he spent year, the years he's also uh, had, spent with Barnabas teaching and building the church in Antioch of Syria. As it's described in Acts chapter 10, verses 25 through 26, Sometime during this first ministry, Barnabas and Paul made a visit to, to Jerusalem that Paul doesn't mention here uh, when they carried relief funds uh, during a severe famine in Jerusalem, according to uh, Acts 11, verse uh, 27 through 30. Also, as part of those uh, 14 years between Paul's first visit to Jerusalem and his second visit to, uh, not second, but his next visit to Jerusalem that he wants to talk about, uh, Barnabas and Paul's first missionary journey took place when they took the gospel to Galatia. Uh, Acts 13 and 14 describe this, which uh, took up two to three years in that first missionary journey. After that, they returned and continued the ministry church in Antioch. But uh, allow me to reflect a little bit on this visit of uh, Paul uh, and Barnabas and Titus to uh, Jerusalem. What was it all about? You have it here described in Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. In my mind, this visit had to do with Jesus, with, with with Jerusalem, with what is called the Jerusalem Conference, uh, described in Acts chapter 15. It was in this Jerusalem Conference that uh, they hammered out what was required of the Gentiles, of the Gentile converts to the faith. Here is where the, in a sense, the middle wall of partition was broken down between Gentile and Jewish believers. Uh, the Judaizers' agenda was put aside in this conference. 
The gospel as Paul preached it was affirmed by Peter, John, and James, the Lord's brother, who seemed to have been the, what we would have called the senior pastor at the, of the church in Jerusalem. Also, Paul's apostleship was affirmed. <coughs> and he and Barnabas were given the right hand of, uh, of fellowship. Uh, uh, recognizing Paul's apostleship and the legitimacy of their ministry. Well, that, that is the, uh, that, in that way, Paul describes this uh, visit to Jerusalem 14 years after uh, that other visit that uh, at the beginning, uh, soon after his conversion. Also, Paul describes in the first part of Galatians chapter 2, as you notice, uh, his intense encounter with Peter uh, here in uh, verses 11 through 13. In regard to table fellowship between Jewish and Gentile believers, uh, this encounter with Peter at Antioch must have taken place after the Jerusalem conference. Uh, the, the purpose of Peter's visit to Antioch of Syria uh, isn't given here. Um, but uh, we, uh, we, we know that the, the church in Antioch of Syria was the, the first Gentile church. Now, there was no doubt a, a mixture of Jew and Gentile believers in Antioch of Syria, but uh, I believe it consisted mostly of Gentile believers. Uh, but, uh, and so uh, the, uh, the church at Antioch uh, was, uh, was the first outreach of the, of the gospel to the Gentile world. So when uh, Peter first came to the church in Antioch, he freely fellowshiped with the Gentile believers. Uh, he, he had table fellowship, and this is very significant. It, it said volumes. <laughs> this, this act of sitting down and eating with each other as Jews and Gentiles was uh, very significant. It's what is called table fellowship. <clears throat> we uh, don't often think of our, <coughs> our fellowship meals <clears throat> as being significant outside of it being good food, right? <laughs> but, uh, <clears throat> but it is very significant. It was very significant here uh, during the time of the early church. Uh, and so uh, when Peter first came to the church in Antioch, he freely ate uh, in, in the fellowship meals that they, they had, they called them love feasts, there in the church. Um, he, was, he was not violating the, uh, the Jerusalem conference mandate by doing so. But Peter stopped having table fellowship with Gentile Christians when a certain group of Jewish Christians showed up from the Jerusalem church who were not used to having this kind of close fellowship 
between Gentile and Jewish believers. <clears throat> so Peter stopped having eating with Gentiles. He avoided those uh, fellowship meals, if you please. And, and eventually, uh, somehow, the, the Jewish, maybe the Jewish Christians had their own fellowship meal, and the Gentile Christians had their fellowship meal. They did not get together uh, <clears throat> in table fellowship because of uh, what Peter did here. Uh, so why did, why, was, why did Peter do this? Well, we don't know, except that he was, seemed to have been intimidated by the uh, circumcision, uh, the, by the, uh, the Judaizers. He, uh, he, was, uh, he, he withdrew from having table fellowship with the Gentiles. Um, the, this was a powerful blow to the unity of the church. In that sense, this indicated that the Jewish believers were somehow superior to the Gentile believers. Um, and uh, inadvertently, Peter, by his conduct here in Antioch, was also accommodating the agenda of the Judaizers. Well, it created a major rift uh, division in the Antioch church. And so Paul publicly confronted Peter about this issue. Um, twice Paul referred to what Peter and those who were copying him, including even Barnabas <laughs> and the other Jewish believers in Antioch, he called it, uh, referred to it as dissimulation. Now, the word dissimulation is just another big word for hypocrisy. He called it hypocrisy, uh, which it really was in verse 13. Uh, they were acting hypocritically. They were not acting uprightly, verse 14. Not only was Peter not acting according to what he himself believed, but he was not acting according to the truth of the gospel, Paul says in verse 14. <clears throat> well, we're not told how Peter responded to Paul's straightforward rebuke. But Lenski says in his commentary on this event that Peter's noble character comes through by accepting Paul's sharp rebuke. <clears throat> We're not told any differently in the text. Uh, and so uh, uh, table fellowship was restored again in the, uh, in the church at Antioch. Um, well, uh, Paul, uh, Peter was intimidated. And this is not the first time that Peter was intimidated. Remember the uh, trial of Jesus? <laughs> Uh, he was intimidated by uh, several people who said, aren't you a disciple of Jesus? <laughs> he said, no, no. <clears throat> so this wasn't the first time. Uh, it seemed that Peter might have, have had a little problem being intimidated by others. <clears throat> well, so... Uh, uh, 
now we have verses 15 through 21. And uh, these uh, several verses have to do with the uh, foundational doctrine of our salvation. <clears throat> Where Paul uh, defines uh, what it means to be made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ. I believe that it is important that we have a clear understanding uh, of the gospel, that it is a gospel of grace and not of works, so that we aren't lured away to embrace what Paul calls another gospel. And so please note that Paul defines the truth of the gospel uh, by three precise statements in verses 15 through 21. Um, I'm going to read uh, again verses 15 through 21. We are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, but by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I through the law am dead to the law, that I might be, but I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. <clears throat> uh, so three times in this passage, in verses uh, uh, 15 and 16 especially, uh, Paul reinforces in the, that the gospel uh, is by grace and not by works of the law. <clears throat> and uh, you, you have that given in, in three statements. He repeats it three times in verse 16 itself. And then uh, Paul, I want you to think about the fact that Paul is then going to expand <clears throat> on, on the, the, what he's saying here in the next three chapters of the book of Galatians. Paul is going to prove that no man, not even Abraham, who is referred to as the father of us all, was not justified by keeping the law. Or as Paul put it here, by the works of the law. So the first statement in verse 16 is that man is justified by faith in Jesus Christ, not by, not, not by works of the law. <clears throat> this is the positive statement that completes the concept Paul is communicating here. Uh, justified not by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So he, he repeats this three times. First one, is in, is, he says, it is, and it's given as a general statement, he says, a man is not justified by the works of the law. 
Then he makes it a personal statement in, in verse 16 by saying, even we have now believed. Uh, even we Jews, even Peter and Paul, we uh, believed in Jesus Christ uh, in order to be made right with God. So it's a personal statement. Uh, even we who were brought up in the law were not are not justified by the law. Even we had even we had no advantage. Even we had to come as guilty sinners by the way of the cross. And then you have the third time Paul repeats it, the truth of being justified by faith, and he gives it as a universal statement in, in, in verse 16. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in the sight of God. <clears throat> I have said this um, uh, a few times as I was giving exposition to the book of Romans in the last several years, uh, even here in this church. And, and uh, a few of you uh, wondered at uh, the forcefulness of my statement. But I said that, uh, that no one has ever, Jew, Gentile, Old Testament, New Testament, no one has ever been justified by the works of the law. And here he reinforces it. By the works of the law shall no man, no man or woman born in the family of Adam be justified. We are justified, we're made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ. That comes through clear in this particular passage. Well, I, I, let me go on and, and cap off uh, all I've said this morning by doing a little exposition of uh, verse 20. Uh, this is really, the verse 20 gives us the heart and the core of the gospel. Um, and, and by saying, uh, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the law and the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. <clears throat> um, this verse contains the heart and the core of the gospel of our salvation. Paul is stating here in one verse what he, in essence, is going to explain in the next three chapters. <clears throat> verse 20 is one of those uh, verses of scripture that is so loaded with truth, precisely stated, that it is difficult to grab a hold of it sometimes. Paul is, by, by saying, Paul by saying, I am crucified with Christ, he is, he is telling us that uh, he is identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, as Romans chapter 6 would put it. I'm crucified with Christ. The Holy Spirit is telling us that all of the benefits 
of, the, of Jesus dying on the cross is available to me and you when we place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, when we embrace him as our sin sacrifice. Folks, that is mind-boggling, but that is true. I hope you, you somehow have appreciation for this, uh, for, for this fact. According to verse 20, Christ's crucifixion did two things for Paul, and he does two things for each one of us. <clears throat> it frees us from our sins. Uh, it, uh, and, and from the curse of the broken law. Remember that sin is a transgression of the law, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 3. Paul will, will say in chapter 3 and verse 13 that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, the curse of the broken law, the curse of sin. <laughs> by being crucified, by being made a sin sacrifice on our behalf. This means forgiveness, folks. It means a clearing of the record of all of your sins. It means being reconciled to God, which is an enormous privilege. Somehow, somehow, I, I, I can't explain it, folks, but somehow in the economy of God, when I place my faith in Jesus as my sin sacrifice, as my savior, if you please, I am identified with Christ, <laughs> and it's a mystery, and I can say I'm crucified with Christ. <laughs> Nevertheless, Paul says, I live. <laughs> so in essence, two things happened at the cross and at the resurrection freed us from our sins, and reconciled us back to God. Secondly, it makes available a new life to us. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, in my daily life, in my daily walk, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you understand that? Can you plumb the depth of that? I challenge you to reflect on that enormous truth. In other words, it makes available new life to us. This is not physical life, but spiritual life. It's living by the power of the resurrection, the life of the spirit, Life that enables me to live above sin. Call it eternal life, if you please, and you don't miss it by far. In fact, I believe that's what it is. I, I would like to dismiss this morning by having us uh, quote together uh, verse 20. 
And I, and I, I feel like I haven't uh, touched the depths of, of this verse and the truth that it contains, but I encourage you, I, I hope I've at least given you a thirst for exploring it further in your own personal life. I encourage you to do that. Let's stand together. I believe that we can, uh, in unison, uh, share this verse together. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of God. Gave himself for me. Yes, amen. Lord, I pray that you will bless each one here as we have attempted to reflect on this marvelous truth of what it means to be crucified with Christ and experiencing life, life more abundantly, life that is eternal, life that is spiritual. I pray that each one of us might experience this kind of life. Dismiss us with your blessing. Thank you for being with us in Jesus' name. Amen.